Hi, I'm Michelle. I'm a creative writing student from Southern Cross University and I'm here at the Byron Bay Writers' Festival with Matthew Evans. Matthew is a food writing farmer, chef and pretty fabulous TV host. He lives and works on Fat Pig Farm in the beautiful, very beautiful Huon Valley in Tasmania. He's big on sustainability, trusting and knowing what you eat. He's a sustainable seafood advocate and an author of over a dozen books on food. Matthew's latest book, Soil, is the incredible story of what keeps the earth and us healthy. Welcome, Matthew, to the SCU Buzz podcast. Thanks for having me, Michelle. I can't believe I'm sitting in an electric, um, uh, converted electric combi. It's like, was it 1970s? I don't know, with these beautiful you know, blue and gold seats. It's such a cool space. It is. It's fabulous. Now, there are more living things in a teaspoon of soil than there are humans on Earth. Yeah. Can, you please, can you please expand on that a little? Yeah, like that was one of those numbers that when I first heard it, it just blew my, my brain apart. Like I'd heard of healthy soil, and 15 years ago before I really grew food much at all, um, I'd heard of this idea of healthy soil, but I never, I'd never put these two things together. Healthy equals living. And, and, and so I just thought of healthy soil as having, I guess, some minerals in there or enough nitrogen for a plant to grow. And I never really thought of it as a, a living, breathing superorganism. But it turns out that, that um, healthy soil is full of life, like full of living things. And a lot of those are tiny, you know, single-celled organisms. Not all are. They can be you know, mites and worms and, uh, and springtiles and other things. But, um, yeah, th that idea that, that, that there can be up to 10 billion living things in a teaspoon of healthy soil kind of... I, I, my, I had this whole brain shift in the way I treat the stuff underneath our feet. It's alive, like yeah. literally. Literally alive, and you know when I, when you look historically, you know the, there's some books from the 1930s that talk about you know the life within soil because they had uh, uh, microscopes, you know, mm. nearly 100 years ago, over 100 years ago, that could see a bacteria, that could see single-celled organisms. But I guess for a long time we, we treated um, you know, bacteria in particular as germs, and germs are bad, and, and not really understanding their role in, in the world. And, you know, they're actually, especially bacteria, you know, they've, they've been here for a long time. We've been born into the world that they have existed in, that they created. So they, they created oxygen in the environment. They detoxify, you know, arsenic and chemicals within the environment. Um, you know, they've had a role to play in, they have a massive role to play in soil and plants, and, and of course they have a role to play in us. But I guess we, because we can't see them, we didn't, we don't think of them. We don't think of them, you know, we don't think of soil as alive because everything's a bit small and soil's a bit boring to look at for, for most people. Not for me. <laughs> well, I found this statement pretty mind-blowing, and so if you can expand on that just a little. Um, microbes of healthy soil can form the genesis of rain. Oh, yeah, and it's just started raining here. Like, and what's really amazing about this, so, so soil can have a role in climate. So all the, the living things in soil and all the dead stuff, so um, that can be dead uh, microorganisms or it can be plant, you know, leaf litter and dead roots, mm. that can create carbon in soil. So, so, and we know that carbon has an impact on the climate. So we know soil can affect climate. If we can store more carbon in soil, we can affect climate. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and, but climate's what's going to happen in, ten, you know, in 
over the next five, 10, 20 years. Weather's what's gonna to happen tomorrow. And when I was you know, digging around into the, the research into soil, I discovered this thing that, that soil microbes, that the microorganisms in soil, um, uh, we used to think they couldn't be transported into the, into the atmosphere, into the high atmosphere. Um, uh, but it turns out they can. And there was this amazing scientist, David Sands, I think his name was, in the 1980s. He, he had this idea that um, he, he, was, he was researching a, a disease of wheat. This, this disease got into the wheat um, through a micro, it was a, it was a microbe, a microorganism, a bacterium. And it got in because it could create frost on, on the wheat leaves and weaken the leaves. And then it would get an entry point into the leaf. Now it could create frost at a warmer temperature than would normally happen. So it's like it was a, you know, by, by getting onto the leaf, it could create this little frost, get into the leaf. So he wanted to grow, he wasn't a soil uh, biologist, microbiologist, he was into plants, but he wanted to grow wheat without this disease. How do you do that? Well, you make sure there's none of that bacterium around. So he got seeds that didn't have the bacterium on, he got soil that didn't have the bacterium in it, he got water that didn't have the bacterium on it, and he planted his wheat. And then suddenly after a few weeks, the, the the wheat all got the same disease and it had this bacterium on that didn't exist previously and he wondered where it came from and he had this idea that that if if a if a, um, a bacteria if bacteria could rise up into the um, the atmosphere as far uh, into the clouds to create rain um, uh, water vapor has to create ice in the clouds it has to become you know ice crystals and that that um, then crystallizes um, that then falls as rain you know, that's how, how rain is formed. And he thought, well, if this bacterium can create ice on at ground level, surely it can create ice in the clouds. So we went up in an aeroplane, love this kind of science, mad science. He goes up in an aeroplane. I don't think he's flying it. He shoves his hand, because he has to shove his hand out the window. This is low, you know, low tech science. He gets frostbite, he's, you know, on his fingers. Um, as he puts his hand out the window, captures some of the air from within the clouds, two and a half kilometers up, crazy distance up, brings it back down and discovers, you know, you know um, these are agar plates and you can breed up the bacterium. So he breeds it up, discovers that bacterium, the single bacterium that he's looking for. You know, there could be 10,000 species in a single teaspoon of sorbet. This particular species is in the clouds, the one that caused his disease on wheat. And he thinks, well, hang on, if it got into the clouds, maybe that was the genesis of rain. You know, beautiful, you know, maybe biology, biologically active soils, biologically active regions like forests can affect rainfall. And um, what was really amazing about that research, he wrote a, a scientific report in the early 90s, I think it was, late 80s. Nobody did anything for 20 years. They all thought he was, it was ridiculous. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty far out concept. It's a far out concept, isn't yeah. it? And it wasn't until oh, 2010 that other researchers around the world, but it happened actually in, um, where he was studying, Montana State University, he's American, um, where, where uh, David Sands had been. Uh, another scientist went and collected hailstones that had fallen during this storm and cut open all of the hailstones. And every single hailstone right in the centre had a bacteria. That's, bacteria. that's, so, that's amazing. And, and so yeah. they went, hang on, oh, hang on. This, maybe, why, why, why is that happening? And so they looked into it and all around the world they then suddenly discovered this happens in Australia, it happens in Antarctica, it happens in Africa. And it's not just that one species, there's lots of different species. So we now know that things from the soil can be lifted into the atmosphere and can be moved around and form the genesis of rain. And so rain, uh, soil health, biologically active soil, can, can form rain. And they call it a bioprecipitation. Yeah. And it's this beautiful, it's a very, very new concept. But yeah. All, you know, yeah. And, and it, it's hard to research. Yeah. But no. it shouldn't be surprising. You know, no, really. no, no, it's, it's not. <laughs> and that leads me on to the next question then. Um, what is like chocolate cake soil? 
<laughs> chocolate cake. So, so I always thought, you know, I used to hear people talk about um, Zora being like chocolate cake, and I was, you know, I trained as a chef um, when I uh, when I first left school. So for me, chocolate cake was chocolate cake. Soil is soil. Soil, you know, they, they are not the same. You know, chocolate cake, delicious, lovely. You know, crumbly. You know, moist but crumbly. You know. Um, enough air in there that it's light on the palate and you know all that kind of stuff and and soil is just you know a medium to grow plants in I thought mm-hmm. well lots of gardeners growers talk about this um, the texture of soil good soil healthy living soil as being like chocolate cake and um, it turns out they're right who'd have thought um, you know centuries or you know millennia of good growers you know with reverence for the earth knowing more than me that's no big surprise but um, I guess it's like Good soil is like chocolate cake in that, you know, you want air through it. So, so people think of soil as solid or the ground as solid, but it actually breathes. The top 20 centimetres of soil exchanges all its gases every hour, every hour. All the oxygen, the nitrogen, the you know, hydrogen, all of that is, um, uh, it's breathing. It actually is a living, breathing superorganism. So you need that, that sort of loose structure. Um, uh, it has uh, good soil has um, carbon compounds in there. You know, things that have lived or formerly lived. Uh, it's sort of glued together a little bit by fungi and by, by bacteria. Mm. So, um, so like chocolate cake, you know, it sort of crumbles a little bit in your fingers. But if you really yeah. squeeze it in your hands, it kind of clumps up a bit. Um, and it's a, and and it's uh, good soil is uh, is dark from the organic matter. So when we think of topsoil, good soil. That's, that's the dark bit on the top of the earth. If you dig a hole, you'll find that there's a sort of a band. It might be one centimetre or it could be ten centimetres or a metre down, but usually it's you know, five to ten centimetres of dark stuff. That's got organic matter in, so stuff that has formerly been alive. It's full of carbon, you know, things that have got carbon in their structure. And that's the dark bit. So, so it has that colour of chocolate cake as well. That's interesting. I do, I do love soil. I'm a gardener. Oh, so you're so, like me. You're a bit... Yeah. Do you find... I don't know. Michelle... I find when I get excited about soil, and I talk to my non-soil friends, I call them my non-soil friends, and they, you know, I'm like, oh, soil's so interesting, oh, look at this, and feel, and touch, and smell, and, and they look at me like I'm mad. Do you find that? Maybe I don't share as much as you, you're a public figure, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I, I relate to the soil as being a living thing, and I, I have for a long time, I smell it, I, I talk to it, I love to lay on it, and different places have their different individual scents. Yeah. Um, well, just so you know, really you are not normal. <laughs> out in the, out in the big wide world, I've discovered a whole bunch of people who aren't into soil, and and they think people like you and me are completely mental for being into soil because really. Well, because I guess they they don't envisage it in maybe in the same way. And if you're not growing, if you're not growing food, you don't have a personal relationship with it. So you know, really, people only care about stuff because they have an attachment or a relationship. With it, mm. and so if you're not growing food, you may not really um, appreciate soil to the same extent. That's 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 right. It's a bit like what Bruce was saying. You know, you have to speak to the earth and and to to be able to listen and hear. You know that a lot of our culture now is about colo- still a little bit colonial, and we only view it as a resource. Yeah, than, yeah. Bruce Pascoe puts that yeah. a lot of that stuff really yeah. well. He's you know, I love these um, people who have been thought about these topics for a long time and have, yes. you know, I guess that indigenous point of view where they reframe how the stuff you and I are familiar with. And, yeah. And you know, yeah. So, so it talks to this is something that interesting that I read in your um, book. Um, you said that there's no shortage of the raw ingredients that make up 95% of the soil. So that's a pretty hopeful statement. So if 40 to 50% of the world's current 
agricultural land is degraded. What do you see as a way that we can help? Yeah, so so um, most of what makes up soil, 95% of, these are global averages, so 95% of what makes up the, the dry weight of soil is crushed up rock. So it's sand, silt and clay. So it's not living stuff and it hasn't been living, but it's sort of just rock that's been crushed up. So unless you're on bedrock, um, you know, hard stone, um, you've got some kind of stuff there, that sand, silt and clay to grow in. What's missing is the biology and what's missing is the carbon, so the things that have formerly lived. So um, organic matter. So, you know, you people would think of that as, you know... Uh, Banana mul- peels. Yeah, anything anything that has, has lived, you know, a plant, any plant matter. So it can be, you know, plants that, that have been um, uh, grown and cut. So it could be mulch that you've bought or it can be um, green living plants uh, and their roots um, that, that, that grow and die off into the soil. Um, it can be those microbes because what a plant does is actually a plant takes uh, um, carbon out of the atmosphere and turns it into carbohydrate, sugar, and it dribbles about 30% of its sugars into the soil. It feeds the underground ecosystem. So if you've got healthy living soil, all of those things under the, you know, the 10 billion living things are, you know, in a teaspoon of healthy soil, they exist around the roots of plants and they can't create their own food. They need sugar and the plant feeds sugars that it creates out of photosynthesis, taking carbon dioxide out of the air. It feeds those sugars to the underground ecosystem. So it's putting, car- a green living plant is constantly putting carbon into soil. What we've done through, you know, generally through ignorance um, and, and technological advances that are quick fixes or you know, they, they seem to be a quick fix is we have um, grown food and impoverished soil. So we know how to get a green living plant using some artificial inputs that, but that green living plant you know, growing faster doesn't necessarily um, feed the soil underneath. And we, we now know that tilling soil, like ploughing soil, is really bad for it. It releases carbon, it, it washes away, blows away quicker. In fact, you lose carbon, you lose topsoil 100 times faster than nature can make it if you plough. And um, so what we have to do is say, okay, if we want to grow food or grow fibre, you know, things for us to live in or wear um, using soil, then we have to feed soil. So yes, we, could, we, we had these short-term ways of getting stuff, food, you know, things to eat, things to wear, um, from soil, um, but we haven't fed soil in the meantime. So that's why 40, 30, 40% of our agricultural land is degraded. How do we get it back? Green living plants, always mulch, never bare earth, you know, trying to avoid erosion. Um, you know, this, th- th- these are all not new technologies. We've known this for a long time, but now we have the science to back it up. And we actually have some really clever people with really big brains who are saying, you know, it takes, in parts of Australia, it takes a thousand years for nature to make one centimetre of topsoil. Wow. Yes. Yeah. In the the best nature can do is about twelve centimeters in a uh, thousand years, and that's in really you know fertile um, places with decent rainfall. Mm. And so, but we know humans can make topsoil twenty times faster, thirty times faster than nature can make it because we know if we know what plants to put in, we know how to manage the soil. We can actually grow topsoil quicker. So we're not growing the sand, silt, and so clay. So we can support the earth rather than taking away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we can still take away yeah. what, we, what we want, but we can only do that in the long term if we, if we feed soil and give soil what it wants. And yeah. so we now, you know, I guess we lost our reverence for, for earth, you know, when, when we all got separated from the growing of our food. And we, mm. our, our response to soil was always, for a long time, was, you know, attached to our stomachs. You know, we, if the soil wasn't any good, we wouldn't get any food. Now... That, you know, we were all very removed from soil, um, but um, but we but we also now have the technology. So we may have lost some of the reverence, 
but um, we also have the, I guess, the scientific knowledge to say, well, you know what, soil needs this, this, and this. It needs cover. It needs not you know, not be exposed. It needs green living plants. It needs organic matter. We know it needs those things. How do we grow food and give back? And um, it's possible. It's only possible if we put soil first. So instead of just putting soil under our feet, it has to be top of our minds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this leads me on to the next question. The university has just introduced a new degree last year on regenerative farming, which you're going to have a talk in a little while. Can you please um, talk about that farming and and what what it involves? Yeah, so regenerative farming, which is um, a relatively new term, it, it I guess what it's trying to say is can we can we grow food or fibre, you know, wool or you know, cotton or um, you know think you know, uh, timber for, for us to build and you know, houses or use for for um, other purposes? What how can we grow things that we want? And um, not just sustain the topsoil and the environment, because sustain, sustainability is important. Sustainability, by definition, means you should be able to do it forever. But because we've gone so far backwards, you know, we've lost. Australia's lost half its topsoil since European colonisation. You know, pretty bad. This is the magic bit that does all of you know Australia's growing. We lost half in 200 years. We're due to lose the next half in, the, in about 40 to 50 years. Regenerative agriculture says, well, let's not do sustainable because we're at a bad, we're at a low base. Let's not do just do sustainable. Let's regenerate. Let's rebuild. Let's you know re- replace what we have taken and maybe give give back more. Create places that are more verdant, more fertile than they were two, three hundred years ago, um, uh, because that's the only way humanity can survive. So the, the principles of regenerative agriculture are pretty much the what you know based on what soil needs. So it's trying to have green living plants year round always have soil um, covered um, so if you can't have a green living plant you have some kind of uh, mulch or you know, um, dead organic matter over it um, uh, uh, diversity which I always try to have diversity of plants um, uh, and that may not be at one time it might be diversity over time so you would do like rotations of crops so if you wanted to grow wheat you don't have to have wheat and 16 other things growing but maybe you have wheat not followed by wheat but wheat followed by could be a soybeans or something that puts nitrogen in the soil, followed by sorghum, and by millet, and then by wheat again, and that feeds soil because um, soil loves diversity. Can you expand a little bit on the consequences of the selective breeding that um, we have in our agriculture at the moment, um, as opposed to you're speaking about diversity and the value of diversity? Yeah, so so soil gets depleted if it has to grow the one thing constantly, like so, soil soil. Um, evolved with with a diversity of plants and so the soil that we have um, currently is used to having a really diverse array of plants and animals over it in it and on on it and um, what we want to do when we grow food is we we want to grow what we want to grow so there used to be something like 30,000 well there still are 30,000 different plant products that are available for humans to consume around the world but really we're down to about 30 that represent you know, 95% or so of our, our plant consumption. Um, a lot of people don't eat more than you know, 10 plant products a week. Um, and so what that does, that's the human diet is, is a bit impoverished, which has an effect on health. Um, but from a soil perspective, yeah. that impoverishes soil because soil really needs 
diversity because every plant gives something to soil and every plant takes something from soil. So when you know, every plant has different root architecture, it has different uh, chemicals that it dribbles out into the soil to feed the underground ecosystem. Um, uh, every plant has um, uh, a different way of uh, um, binding soil together through its relationship with fungi and other things in the soil. Um, and so, uh, so the, the more diversity we can have, it's the better it is for soil. And 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 that includes animals because you know soils evolve with animals. So we need you know, little tiny animals like springtails, almost microscopic that live in soil. We need the worms, obviously, that live in soil, and ants and termites. But we also need the things that crawl above it, the insects, um, and the birds, and and uh, and, the, and the grazing animals. You know, they all have they all have a role in the ecosystem to move fertility around to. Um, to concentrate fertility, to, to alter um, uh, the the um, uh, the soils that, that we need to, to live on. So when we when we grow food, if we're going to grow food, and we just want to grow, so let's just say wheat. Wheat is a really good example because you know it's grown in big scale in Australia. Everyone eats wheat all the time, all the time. We want wheat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, bread, flour, pasta, um, you know, cake, whatever. Um, uh, if you keep growing the same crop and you keep spraying it for you know getting rid of all the other plants that are you know um, that the soil wants and insects and then you spray for the insects no. um, then you pretty much you're stripping all you know the ecosystem apart you pull the ecosystem apart and that's not what soil wants so you can do it but you can only do it for you know it might seem like a long time to a farmer you know 50 years 10 years whatever um, uh, but you can't do it forever and 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 not give back to soil because soil has is resilient, it can cope with you know some of these things. We've got some chemicals that we can use, some artificial fertilizers that can allow us to get away with it for in the short term. But in the long term, soil doesn't forget. And it, and and what soil needs is you know it needs that diversity in it, on it, over it. Um, and and if we want to get what we want, then we have to give soil what it wants. Yeah. And what we've got to wait, you know, in in a geological times fifty it, uh, your terms in geological terms fifty years is is a speck. I mean, it might be a long time as a farmer. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. So, and because how long have you had your farm? We've had this farm for about eleven years, and um, uh, the current farm I'm on. And uh, and and what's really interesting is we've seen changes in that time. We've seen changes in the climate, um, but we've also seen changes on our land. And and what I think is beautiful is that while it can seem, you know, we can we can impoverish soil and we can lose soil. What, what's amazing, and anyone can see this in their house garden, is how quickly you can build soil. How, how our, at our boundary, compared to our neighbours, changes we've made are obvious after 11 years. We, we brown off, you know, we, in the, when it goes dry in summer, we've now brown off six weeks later than the neighbours because of the things that we've done. We can measure the increase in carbon in the soil. We can see the diversity of the plants and animals that, that, that are on our property. And it's beautiful to see in a... In a you know, it sounds like a, I'm sure if some of you listeners are in their twenties or something, ten years sounds like an eternity. You know, most, yeah. When I was twenty, I didn't think I'd live till I was thirty. But it's actually a really short time, yeah. and you can see the changes in, in a in in only a, a part of a human lifespan. Yeah. And I think that's what gives me hope. Is yes, we can impoverish soil. But so you have radical hope. Radical, <laughs> yeah, that's the that theme radical of hope. This festival. I know. I'm so, so you excited. Feel you have radical hope for the future, as far as we can manage our soil. And and regenerate it through regenerative farming practices. There's no doubt that we can do all of that. We've got the technology. We've got lots of people who are really, you know, brains the size of a planet who are cleverer than me. They're doing it all around the world. And this topic that was kind of ignored for a long time is now 
getting a place on the national and global scale. I was just meeting with a state agriculture minister talking about soil just last week. Like this is a, this is not this is something that, that people are actually doing good work in. Yeah. 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 No. That's great. No okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Michelle.